Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Ryan Mara Evans, and I'm a student farm manager for the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is writer Paul Greenberg. His book, Four Fish, The Future of Last Wild Food, focused on the histories of salmon, sea bass, cod, and tuna, and we see received wide praise. He revisits similar ideas, albeit from a more local angle, in his new book, American Catch, The Fight for Our Local Seafood. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Ryan. All right, so let's start off with the, with the hyper-local, where we're situated right now, New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, it plays a pretty, I think, significant role, or the history of the oyster plays a pretty significant role in the development of New Haven mm-hmm. as a city. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, oysters um, are really, uh, if, if there were an American sort of symbol uh, of seafood in this part of the world, it would be the oyster. Um, Why Connecticut? Well, Connecticut has many coastal rivers that come down into Long Island Sound um, and into a relatively quiet body of water. And this is kind of the ideal conditions for oysters. Oysters like to inhabit inhabit the interface between freshwater and saltwater. Um, And so all up and down the Connecticut coast, you had very significant oyster industries developed um, near Bridgeport, near New Haven, uh, Milford right nearby. Um, And actually, New York City, um, where I'm from, uh, was considered one of the great oyster-producing cities in the in the world um, up until about the 1920s. Great. So, so you hit on something right there, I think, like urbanization and the process of urbanization definitely influenced and was ultimately influenced by kind of the fishing industry. Mm-hmm. What issues exist in bringing oysters, shellfish, or any form of seafood back into urban environments? What does the rehabilitization process or the reintroduction process look like? It depends where you are on the timescale of loss of oysters. <clears throat> so in a place like uh, the Chesapeake Bay, there are still enough oysters out there um, so that if you put the necessary substrate in the water, which, by the way, is usually just oyster shells in bags, um, you will get um, a set of larvae onto those oyster shells. And then you can kind of figure out um, where to put oysters back based on where the larvae set. Um, in a case like New York City, um, which has lost, um, you know, we used to have trillions of oysters in New York City. Um, now we barely have any. Um, there we've lost um, not just the infrastructure of oysters, we've lost the reproductive capability of oysters. So there we actually, um, and there is an, uh, you know, an oyster restoration project going on in New York City right now, but in order to make it viable, we literally have to restart the engine of fecundity. So there's kind of a two-part process going on in New York right now. Um, there are six test sites around the greater New York Bight where they've put out um, test reefs and they've seeded them with oysters, um, spat on shell, it's called, you know, oysters set onto a piece of shell. Um, They've done that throughout the New York Bight in six different locations, and they're finding pretty good survival rates on those oysters. But the other thing they're trying to do is to actually get oyster reproduction going again. So um, now you have a project of that started with the New York Harbor School. It's a high school on Governor's Island. And they've actually gotten two oyster nurseries going, one on Governor's Island and one um, in the Brooklyn Naval Yards. So what you're trying to do is kind of basically create this engine of larval production that will spill out into the greater New York Bight. And then hopefully, if you can create structures upon which um, these larval oysters can set, you can kind of set the whole thing in motion again. And this whole thing now is bracketed by a, a, a newly launched project called the Billion Oyster Project. And the goal there is to get a billion oysters uh, into New York Harbor by 2025. And, you know, so far they're on their way. I think they have at least a billion. 
What what kind of hurdles or barriers exist, like legislatively or in like local politics, to reintroducing the oyster to New York? Are there certain people who are blocking, you know, the reimagination of the New York coastline or what New York's waters look like? The biggest problem with reintroducing oysters to a place like New York is that the oysters most certainly will not be be edible. <clears throat> and it's important to note that the reasons people want to put oysters back into New York Harbor. Um, is not really their food quality, but it's really their potential as filterers of water. I mean, a single oyster will filter about 50 gallons of water per individual per day. So if you know if you have a billion oysters, that's quite a bit of water. And if you have a trillion oysters like you used to have, that's really a lot of water. Um, they also create structure for um, other animals that we would potentially like to eat or at least like to have around, uh, toss hog, um, porgies, all sorts of other fish find oyster reef really a great habitat. Um, but people can't seem to get away from the fact that you could eat oysters, or at least they would be a temptation to eat. And so um, in the early days of oyster restoration in New York City, um, the way that uh, regulators approached it was from a really great place of fear. Um, they were really afraid that somebody was going to eat an oyster, get sick, and sue the city. And so it's all built around trying to avoid potential risk to the citizen, to the consumer. So in New Jersey, for example, on the New Jersey side of, of New York Harbor, and you know, I should note that New York Harbor is shared ownership between New York and New, and New Jersey. But the New Jersey side, um, when the Christie administration came in, um, they changed the uh, Environmental Protection Administration, and the new head seemed to really not like oysters very much or oyster restoration projects, and they actually ripped out an oyster restoration project in Keyport Harbor um, for fear that these oysters might get eaten. And um, the sort of suite of legislation or the suite of actions uh, that enable regulators to stop this is, uh, it actually dates from the 19th century. It's called attractive nuisance. And this was a, s a set of laws that um, started during the Industrial Revolution where when um, industrialists would build factories and so forth, um, children sometimes wandered onto those lots um, and got hurt. And um, parents of those children would try to sue um, and the owners of the factory would say well it's not our fault they just you know they just wandered onto the site it wasn't we that compelled them and this um, legal defense was was mounted was no actually your your structure attracted our children onto your site and so they came onto your site they've tripped over a blade or whatever they hurt themselves therefore it's, you, you are dangling and you are at fault so regulators in trying to stop waste restoration applied the same principle of attractive nuisance that oysters were an attractive nuisance. If you put them in the harbor, you were going to draw people to them. They were going to eat them. They were going to get sick. Um, and so that's that's sort of what happened in New Jersey. Now, I mean, I would say regulators are seeing beyond that. Um, I think the oyster has a lot of momentum right now. And, um, you know, at least in New York anyway, uh, I think oysters, you know, have an interesting future ahead of them. Right. So, you, you've mentioned Michael Pollan as being like a pretty significant influence on your work. I mean, uh -huh. that much is evident from, I guess, the entire forum, right? Yeah. Like four fish, yeah. three fish. Yeah. Um, you also drop tons of literary allusions or you, you pepper your work with literary allusions. Uh -huh. What other writers have influenced you in, in your craft? <laughs> well, yes, Michael Pollan certainly very, very influential. Um, but actually, I was um, a Russian major at Brown and... Uh, uh, love the Russian classics. So um, I like the dramatic sweep of a big Russian novel, and um, not that I can actually, um, you know, 
recreate that in the form of nonfiction. But, it, you know, it's in the back of my mind. And like, for example, in the oyster chapter of American Catch, there's a moment um, when I actually eat a New York City oyster. And for a week, I lie on the couch wondering if I'm going to get ill and wondering about my crime like Raskolnikov in, in Crime and Punishment. So, you know, the Russians crop up periodically. Um, but, you know, in terms of other environmental writing out there, I'm, uh, you know, a, a great fan of the work of Carl Safina, who those who are into the ocean might know from his book, Song for the Blue Ocean, um, Eye of the Albatross, um, a View from Lazy Point, just a very, very good writer. Um, and also, you know, I just, I also like good food writers that, you know, kind of get you excited about food uh, in an interesting way. So Bill Buford's Heat, uh, uh, another great thing. I'm a big fan of, you know, when the New Yorker does their annual food issue, I always think that they do an excellent job with that. So, I, you know, in, in a nutshell, I'd say that's about it. So could you help, I guess, like trace the path from the, the Russian novel <laughs> to the environmental book? Or were those, you know, two kind of different forms of writing always in conversation during your education? You know, it, it, they, they, it, funnily enough, they started out kind of of a piece. Um, when I uh, was a, a senior in, in college, I was a Russian major, as I say. But my senior dissertation was on Soviet environmental policy. Keep in mind, back then it was the Soviet Union. Um, and then I actually went over to the Soviet Union um, just after graduating to make a documentary about the Soviet environmental movement. Um, actually, two documentaries I worked on having to do with the environment in the Soviet Union, uh, one in Leningrad and one on Lake Baikal. Uh, but then I got caught in the coup, um, and it was a very you know tumultuous thing. And um, so for a while, um, and I work, ended up working in Russia for many years, mostly around issues of free media. I worked for a company called Internews that developed independent TV stations. But um, and I wrote a novel that was um, uh, based in Russia, um, published also by well pu published by Putnam. Um, when I finished sort of that phase of my life, um, it actually came about kind of randomly. When the novel came out, um, you know, I had been in touch with a lot of different editors, and one editor at the Boston Globe wrote to me. She said, "I th think I remember hearing that you like to fish. Um, we're starting this." thing called the ideas section at Boston Globe, would you like to do sort of a thinking piece about fishing? So I ended up writing a piece about um, uh, Martha's Vineyard and writing about striped bass and bluefish and how whenever you have two species inhabiting the same sort of angling niche, um, the, the, the angler is always quick to let label one as the sort of hero and the other as the villain. So that was sort of the initial piece that I did. Um, and ever since then, I've just been, um, you know, that, that, piece fortuitously fell at a time when people were starting to kind of reinterest themselves in the ocean. And a lot of very sort of scary papers were being generated out of the University of British Columbia, you know, papers like No Fish by 2048, 90% um, of the big fish gone. So with all of that momentum, um, and my editors moving from the Globe to the New York Times, I just kept going and going. And you know, the sea is a big place, there's lots of things to investigate. So for a journalist, it's really, really fertile territory. One of the ideas that I think cropped up in American Catch, or one of the phrases that cropped up in American Catch, was this idea of a Neptunian democracy. Uh -huh. uh, that's a pretty grand term. Could you <laughs> elaborate on that a bit or sure. describe what a Neptunian democracy <laughs> may look like? Yeah, I mean, so that I make that comment towards the end of the book, but, um, you know, when you're a kid studying in this country, you're always given these two alternatives, right? Remember, you must have written this AP essay at some point. It's like compare Hamiltonian, Hamilton's view of the democracy or of the country versus Jefferson's. You know, and that's the choice. Either you're going to have an agrarian society 
um, that's based on the principles of you know the yeoman farmer and Jeffersonian ideas, or you're going to have this sort of Hamilton model. It's going to be business, you know, banks, futures, derivatives, that kind of thing. Well, the thing is, when we found this country and when we settled it, we settled its coasts, and it was neither um, Jeffersonian nor Hamiltonian. It was Neptunian. It was it was an ocean city. I mean, sorry, an ocean country, and um, you know. It's it's a cod that hangs in you know in the, in the Massachusetts State House, um, and that's how the original northeastern colonies were built. They were built on the backs of fish. So somehow we got away from that. We we looked at the sea as just a kind of you know rape and pillage commodity thing that would allow us to underwrite other things like like industry, like um, agrarianism. And I guess my what I put out there is like, well, what if we were to kind of flip this whole thing on its head? What if we you know we now know that marine proteins you know, fish, shellfish, even algaes and seaweeds um, have many, many benefits that land food doesn't. And what if we were to flip this thing on its head and say, you know, we've been doing it all wrong. We really, what we really should be doing is, you know, undamming rivers, protecting estuaries from pollution, um, sustainably managing wild fisheries, all in pursuit of raising the profile of our coasts in our lives, both from a, you know, an environmental point of view and from a culinary point of view. One important piece, I think, that comes from that is is the education of the youth. I mean, you mentioned how the primary education system kind of frames the development of America as, you know, agrarianism versus financialism. Yeah. Um, how do you think projects like the Sound School or the New Haven Harbor School factor into relooking or reassessing kind of America's history as an aquatic nation, as a Neptunian democracy? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of key, right? I mean, it, it's almost like... You know when, when the when the canon was challenged back when I was a kid. You know in the eighties, seventies, and eighties. You know when suddenly it wasn't going to be just Dickens and Flaubert and you know the handful of white men that underscored under you know girded the curriculum. That you know suddenly we were going to have Chinua Achebe. We were going to have you know all sorts of um, writers from all sorts of the world with all sorts of experiences informing what students consider reality. Because what reality is a construct, you know, it's based upon what we learn, what we study. So um, now, um, as the momentum has been gaining around things focused on the sea, so I mentioned the New York Harbor School, you mentioned the Sound School. Um, New York Harbor School actually just got a big National Science Foundation grant to develop middle school curricula based on, you know, oyster culture, but also just general, you know, coastal awareness. So, I mean, you know, you formulate your ideas of reality much sooner than high school. And in a way, high school is kind of about mostly applying to college, you know. And um, you're still, I think, receptive as a middle schooler, which is, I think, why Harbor School decided to really focus on middle schoolers. So, you know, I think that that's how we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to start on a very, very um, young level to plug people back into the coast. And certainly, you know, with climate change and, and seas rising, we're going to have less land and more ocean, um, and you know we better have a population that's educationally, you know, prepared to deal with that. So your your work is interspersed with key pieces of environmental legislation mm-hmm. or food legislation, like the Food and Drug Act or mm-hmm. the Clean Water Act. Which pieces of legislation or treaties have you identified in your research as being the most influential in the New England fishing industry? Well. I don't know if I would limit it to New England, but I would say that when I was looking for an organizing principle uh, for American Catch, the thing that really stood out was was the Clean Water Act. Um, 
it, it, it is an act that runs through the three major storylines of the book, the three storylines story being oysters in the Northeast, shrimp in the Gulf, and salmon in Alaska. Um, Clean Water, um, you know, Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, um, and it radically changed our approach to our estuaries and to the way we even conceived of them. Up until 1972, we were mostly looking at our waterways as, you know, waste disposal systems rather than food systems. And it's interesting if you look at <clears throat> the way that the oyster industry has grown since 1972, um, it's, it's astounding, and it's a direct result. I think um, if we had not had the Clean Water Act, you would not see the Buck Oyster Special in New York City like you see everywhere now. The Clean Water Act also crops up in the shrimp chapter because uh, I picked up the shrimp chapter um, right after the BP oil spill. And um, it is, in fact, the Clean Water Act that uh, you've probably heard about the recent um, legal decision um, that puts BP on the line, I think, for about 18, million, 18 billion bucks. Um, that money, properly applied, could potentially rebuild... Uh, the, the Louisiana Marsh, which is the homeland of American shrimp in the Gulf, but it's disappearing at a rate of about a football field an hour. Um, so, you know, if we can use those clean water penalties to rebuild the marsh, that's a great thing. And then finally in Alaska, the last chapter, which is about um, salmon in Bristol Bay, um, you know, there's a huge copper mine uh, proposed for the, what's the largest salmon run in, in the country, largest sockeye salmon run in the country. Um, and again, it's the Clean Water Act that might make the permitting of that mine uh, impossible. And it's something called the 404C clause within the Clean Water Act, which allows, um, you know, severe federal intervention, even in places that are not ex technically owned by the federal government, but it allows the federal government to intervene to stop um, uh, dredge and fill permits um, that would be required um, if you were going to have a mine of the size of Pebble Mine uh, in the Bristol Bay watershed. So yeah, it's, it's hugely significant. Gotcha. So I think coming off of the recent like People's Climate March, I think one of the one of the questions on the front of everyone's mind is, okay, what legislative battles are going to be fought, or what like you know popular battles are going to be fought um, to create like not only a more just environment but a more like just kind of ecosystem and like aquaculture. What what do you think is on the horizon when it comes to legislative battles or things that need to be accomplished? Well, I'll throw I'll throw out an idea for a legal battle. This doesn't exist yet, but I've been toying around with it, talking to some lawyers and to some fishermen. Um, one of the biggest concerns that consumers have about eating seafood is mercury, mercury contamination. And there's fairly substantial evidence that suggests that the reason mercury levels have increased in our oceans is because of burning coal. Um, when you burn coal, mercury that's associated with coal seams is methylated and becomes then transferable to the human body through various vectors, and the most common which being fish. Well, it suddenly occurred to me, what if you had a class action lawsuit where you had the fishermen who, you know, fish some of these higher trophic species that do contain higher levels of mercury, you know, tuna fishermen, for example, swordfish, harpooners, those kind of people. What if you have them band together and sue the coal industry? It's an interesting concept, right? Because they, they're, they've been damaged. You know, the, 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 the grounds that lawyers look for when they do these kind of class action things are you know, um, has somebody been damaged? And I would think that American fishermen have been damaged. I think people are staying away um, from seafood uh, because of mercury concerns. And, you know, look at our seafood consumption. It's only 15 pounds per person per year, whereas in Asian countries it's, you know, 35, 40 pounds. I mean, they don't have the same environmental awareness, I think, that we do. 
Um, but certainly, I think Americans think a lot about mercury, and I think it's time. To me, this is, you know, the coal industry would look at it as a lose-lose situation, but I see it as a win-win because you have fishermen who are suing, who would sue potentially to stop coal, and in the end, we need to get rid of coal, you know, if we're going to change the environmental quality of it. And it's like a food system against an energy system, and I, you know, at this point, I'd rather have the food system. So one of the ideas that, that came out of this book, for me at least, or one of the questions that came out of it was, okay, how does an American fishing industry survive in a globalized age where there are so many flows of mm-hmm. capital, of fish, of labor going around the world? Yeah. Um, what, I guess, solutions can you propose or what do you see as being a necessary component to making the American fishermen in whatever stripe they may come in? Mm-hmm. viable in a global market? Well, I mean, first of all, look, let's look at the metrics. More than 85% of the seafood that we eat in this country uh, is imported. It's coming to us from abroad. Um, <clears throat> in spite of the fact that we, as a nation, control more ocean than any country on Earth, something like 2.8 billion acres of ocean. Um, meanwhile, though, we're exporting about 30% of what we catch, about 3 billion pounds a year. So we're sending all of our very good seafood, not a lot of our very good seafood abroad. And in return, we're getting fairly cheap, often farm product, um, a lot of it coming from Asia. So it's a, it's a severe disconnect. So step one, the solution is most Americans don't even realize that this is the case. So step one is, you know, buy American catch, read the book. <laughs> um, assign, you, all you Yale professors out there, assign it to all your classes. It works in an economics class. It works in a biology class. You know, I don't know. Uh, but I joke. But, um, uh, but beyond, you know, awareness, um, I think that we need to figure out an alternative model of distribution, labeling, and purchasing. Um, there are only nascent versions of this right now. I know that Bren Smith um, of the Thimble, Thimble Island Oyster Company nearby, you know, he has what's called a community-supported fishery where you can buy directly from him. Um, you get a monthly share in his harvest. Um, that's great, but again, you know, how do you scale that up? Um, there are larger-scale uh, community-supported fisheries. There's one called the Village Fishmonger in New York City that has, I think, 850 members, but, you know, again— still small. But then you have, like, for example, I was just up at the University of New Hampshire, and there they've had the dining hall uh, in New Hampshire at the university commit to sourcing a certain portion of the dining hall um, fish needs to local fishermen. If you can get that kind of volume going, you know, and that kind of direct purchase, then I think you're on the road to, you know, creating a bulwark against this sort of lowest common denominator system, which is what we have right now. That, that, I guess, approach seems to be very much focused on kind of the, the consumptive side of it. Where do fishermen, right? You, you end American Catch with kind of the collapse of the American fishermen. Yeah. Kind of the, these images of decaying boats on the shoreline right. or, you know, people leaving the waters. Where does the, the figure of the American fishermen figure in to your analysis of food systems? Well, I think fishermen have in the last 20 years been pretty seriously demonized. And, um, you know, sometimes rightly so. It depends on the case. But, um, you know, when by the time we got to about 1996, um, American fishing um, had some elements of being out of control. Um, We had um, a period from about 1976 till the early 1990s where um, after what was something called the Magnuson-Stevens Act was was passed, uh, America expanded its sovereignty um, out to 200 nautical miles. Well, they did that in part because it was, in a way, a, a, a means of creating a defensive buffer. 
you know, it's, it's, it had strategic importance as well as culinary importance. We did want to get the foreign fleets out of our water, but we also wanted to have that added buffer. Well, how do you control an additional 200 nautical miles from shore all around your coast? Who do you put in there to guard it? I think somewhere, someplace, um, the State Department figured, uh, how about fishermen? And so fishing was subsidized to a tremendous degree in the 70s and 80s. You know, you could amortize your vessel in a couple of years and get another one. Um, fuel subsidies, all sorts of things. So we overbuilt the American fishing fleet. Um, and that's when I think fishermen and fishing started getting a really bad rap because we were overfishing quite a few different stocks out there. Now, um, you know, it depends on your perspective, but I have heard public officials say overfishing has ended in America, that overfishing is, is not really occurring anywhere near the scale it was occurring. Um, that may be an, an exaggeration, but certainly overfishing has been addressed and has been limited in a lot of fisheries. And I think American consumers need to sort of understand that if they're going to eat fish, you know, they're going to have to enter into some kind of partnership with the American fishermen and understand those people not just as rapers of the environment, but people who, you know, are actually the only people on the water with any degree of regularity. And that if we want to eat fish, um, we have to, you know, figure out a way to work constructively with fishermen. Another actor that I think you, you brought up um, is is that of the chef. How do, you, how do chefs figure into your the scope of, of your solution? How do they, I guess, transform taste? Or how do they reintroduce things like oysters that have been kind of like forgotten, I guess, in most households in the United States to the, the common palate? Chefs make things cool. You know, that's their main thing. And, you know, chefs, especially today, I mean, 20 years ago, you know, chefs did not have the um, power that they have today. But, you know, chefs, if, if, it's, if it's on a cooking show, if it's in a white tablecloth restaurant, chances are, you know, it's aspirational. You know, people are going to want to have it. So, um, you know, in my earlier book, Four Fish, I talked about sort of the, the four flesh archetypes that dominate our menus, you know, tuna, salmon, cod, and sea bass being these sort of flesh archetypes. Um, the, the, the chef can get you beyond those archetypes. They can get you to try something like, say, a sea robin, which is a fairly bony fish, but which is actually very close to the French rascasse, which is used for making boulibas. So if we can embrace an American form of boulibas, it's probably going to be a chef that's leading the charge. Um, I think chefs also can, you know, if they're informed, tell us when to not eat certain things. Um, you know, there was one of the very first campaigns um, for, uh, you know, marine preservation um, on the table was uh, about 15, 20 years ago, there was a campaign called Give Swordfish a Break, where um, there was excessive fishing going on in the Gulf of Mexico during spawning season of the um, Atlantic swordfish, and it was having a big impact on the stock. That um, campaign, I think, was key in stopping that fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. And now um, Atlantic swordfish are actually f doing better, significantly better. So, you know, to be that kind of arbiter, though, you have to be an informed chef. You can't just sort of, um, you know, look at what's on ice that, on any given day. I think you need to, you know, read reports coming out of NOAA. You need to under meet with conservationists, meet with fishermen, um, and try and be very careful about what it is that you're putting in front of people to lead them in the right direction. Okay. Another issue that I think you, you brought up in your book was that of, like, private property and access to land on the coast, where yeah. I think in the last you know, 20 or 30 years, whether it's in the Pacific Northwest or even in 
the Long Island Sound, you have these instances of like mansions popping up that yep. then like price out a lot of the fishermen, a lot of the smaller fisher people who yep. have to work that land or that's a means of their livelihood. Could you yeah. elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, in New York City, we had a food system that was transformed into a waste disposal system. Um, and that's how we lost the great oyster grounds of New York. But elsewhere up the coast, um, we're transforming food systems into vacation systems or second home systems. Um, fishing, oystering, muscling, none of these businesses are um, hugely profitable. Um, you can make a middle class wage if you're good at it um, off of these kinds of things, but you're not be- going to become rich. Uh, people who are buying second homes, however, you know, they're tapping into a global supply of capital that allows them to far out compete a fisherman's dollars for coastal access. And, you know, not surprisingly, when these wealthy people inhabit the shoreline, they don't really necessarily want to have to deal with aquaculturists and fishermen in their view shed. Um, if they're going to have a yacht, they don't want to have to navigate around around buoys that might mark oyster leases or lobster traps or whatever. Um, and so you have this process that's happening throughout the country of fishermen, of oystermen getting pushed off of their uh, land. I mean, interestingly enough, Connecticut, um, some of the very first property laws in this country were actually established by Connecticut oystermen. Um, the whole notion of having oyster leases um, goes back to like, I think, 18th, maybe in the 17th century. Um, but now, um, you know, on the Connecticut coast, it's very hard as an oysterman to, you know, be able to afford a piece of Connecticut coastal property. I mean, you know, you got to go to Yale and then go to the business school if you want that. Um, so I think, you know, as a country, we have to kind of think about that and decide whether or not we want working waterfronts um, as part of our sort of portfolio as a nation. Um, I, I personally am in favor of it. But if we do do that, then we have to figure out some way to, if not subsidize, then protect the existing working waterfront that we still have. Okay. Another component of, I guess, the question related to, to private property. In your in your research, did you come across anything relating to like Native American land use on the coastlines? Because I don't know. It seems to me like your history starts in like colonial era right. forward. What what did you find, if anything? Um, you know, so I didn't delve into that that deeply. Um, I know that um, you know, in recent uh, research that I'm doing now, I'm writing a piece now for a new magazine called California Sunday. Um, that's going to be an insert into the three major California papers. But when um, they started trying to kind of define uh, through what's called the Marine Life Protection Act, um, marine protected areas um, up and down the California coasts, um, it was, I believe, and I'm you know still just only ankle deep in this research, but it was um, Native American fishing rights in um, Northern California that allowed them to kind of stake out a significant claim against the marine protected area process um, and, and, and claim more pieces of property um, or pieces of ocean um, to keep them out of marine protected areas and allowed fishing rights to continue. Um, certainly, you know, in, in American Catch, um, the whole issue of uh, tribal ownership is, is huge in Bristol Bay um, in that amazing sockeye salmon run um, that they have up there. And actually, <clears throat> one of the big problems is, um, and one of the interesting things in that conflict is that there is a lot of tribal land um, around Bristol Bay, um, but the strike itself, the copper and gold strike that would be Pebble Mine, is on state land. It's not on tribal land. It's not on federal land. It's on state land. 
so you have this funny situation where you have tribes controlling a large portion of the watershed, dependent on the watershed for its salmon, but then this like splinter of state land in the middle of it that could potentially knock out a lot of salmon production, you know, should there be a mine breach or, you know, a, a breach in some of these containment dams that they would be planning uh, for the for the site. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's another player. And in Alaska, you know, the tribes act much more as nations than as sort of, you know, smaller, powerless places. Um, it's still very forceful. The Bristol Bay Native Corporation is a multi-million dollar corporation um, that has contracts in Iraq and, you know, all sorts of things. No doubt. No doubt. Another question I have is how do how do GMOs or genetically modified fish fit into your vision for a revitalized American fishing economy and culture? Right. Well, so right now there is no genetically modified fish on the market right now. There is one in development. Um, the Aquabounty um, genetically modified salmon is actually um, created by a company that's based in New England in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, their argument um, for pursuing a genetically modified salmon is that if you could create a salmon um, that grew twice as fast as the existing farm salmon that we have, that you could then afford to grow them in containment, you know, in, in basically tanks, and you could put those tanks anywhere. So if you were a fan of that sort of thing, um, GMO salmon would mean you could potentially set up a salmon farm next to a restaurant and, you know, couldn't get more local than that. But then that just depends on sort of where you think of, you know, the point of genetically modified fishes. I mean, I personally, you know, have generally been opposed to it. And, um, you know, mostly because we in this country have so much salmon coming out of Alaska, and there's really no need for us to boost salmon production. We actually have more salmon than we know what to do with. We export something like 80% of the salmon that we catch. So why are we tinkering with genetically modified fish when we actually have all the salmon that we need to meet our needs? Right. So why, in your opinion, is, is food writing and the process of like writing about food important in creating progress in the food movement? Where do you situate yourself amongst all of these other actors, whether mm-hmm. they're more like policy oriented or chefs or fish people. Well, one thing I've noticed, and you know, you can tell me now. I mean, are you a, you're an undergraduate or yeah, I'm an undergraduate. Yeah. So, like, when I go to universities, and you know, I've lectured in many universities around the country, and if I ask the question, who here considers themselves an environmentalist? Very few people raise their hands, and I, I don't know if it's because they don't want to be identified with their sort of '60s era parents or '70s era parents. They just don't want to see themselves as an ist. Um, but if you ask the question, who in this audience? cares about their food, all the hands shoot up. And to me, for people of your generation, I feel like food is the gateway into talking about the environment. Um, you know, this generation likes food. They really are interested in food. Um, my generation, you know, when I was, you know, I'm 47, when I was in college, it's like, you know, food was like just sort of, you know, fuel to some degree. And granted, you know, people in the tech sector are happy with um, Soylent and Red Bull. <laughs> um, but I think those of you who are, you know, concerned with the environment, they're concerned with good food, they want to know where it comes from. Um, <clears throat> so I see myself as kind of serving that need from the ocean side of things. Um, you know, Michael Pollan has done it from the land, I'm trying to do it from the sea. Um, I don't know if I'll ever venture into the sort of terrestrial world. And I don't even know, you know, if I'm a food writer for life, but it's something that I, you know, I'm, I, I care about. I like I like writing about the ocean because um, it's, you know, as I said, as the subtitle of my earlier book, Four Fish, it's the last wild food that we eat in any, in any kind of quantity. And so that's an exciting thing to report on, you know, a wild system that we still live off. You know, what could be more interesting than that? 
So what is it that you want your audience, your your readers to do after reading American Catch? Um, is it to buy American Catch? Or <laughs> is it addressing these larger, more systemic political issues of environmental change or environmental degradation? Well, there are two things. I mean, um, uh, from a food and eating perspective, you know, you if you even if you consider yourself like Aldo Leopold, if you enter the food space, people are going to ask you what what should I eat. So, um, if if I were to say one thing that they should come away with, um, you know, Michael Pollan had his favorite famous phrase: um, "Eat food, not too much, mostly plants." You know, beautiful distillation of how you should eat from the land. The ocean is trickier uh, because it is um, mostly wild still. Um, but then there are all these issues of overfishing and so forth. So um, my three-sentence distillation is um, eat American seafood, a much broader variety of it than we currently do, mostly farmed filter feeders. So when I say filter feeders, I mean you know cl- mussels, clams, oysters, kelp, that sort of thing. Um, from a policy point of view, um, <clears throat> I'm you know as to echo earlier parts of the interview, you know. Working waterfronts, I think, are key. Um, I think estuaries, um, the health of our estuaries are key. Um, And these are things, I mean, I would like to create a positive feedback loop between the people who produce our seafood um, and the people who eat it, where the people who are producing our seafood have rights to protect their coast, their bottom structure, their estuaries, and they profit by it because they're feeding Americans high-quality um, hopefully, you know, decently priced food. Um, so if we could establish that feedback loop, I would I would check the mission accomplished box. All right. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for, for this wonderful interview. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.